our featured BBBgive.org accredited charity seal holders for this episode are World Emergency Relief, Youth Villages, ALS Association. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked-about charities. I'm Art Taylor. You know, at Give.org, whenever there is a disaster of any kind, of any magnitude, we're always barraged with questions from people who want to know how they can help. And you know, disaster giving has become, in my time, a much more frequent question that we get because there are so many more disasters, it seems. We hear disasters stemming from natural events. We hear disasters stemming from man-made events or people-made events. And the situation that it leaves both the areas affected and, of course, the people are sometimes really challenging. And in many times, obviously, there's lots of loss of life. There's loss of property and people who are displaced for months, if not years, areas that are basically decimated and have to be rebuilt over long periods of time. So when we think about giving during disasters, we should probably begin thinking about the nature of these disasters and what it will take to make the people whole who are affected, as well as their place of existence. And here to talk with me about disaster relief giving today is my colleague, Bennett Weiner. I met Bennett Weiner back in 2001 when I joined the Wise Giving Alliance as its first CEO. And he has been doing this work for nearly 40 years. Uh, Bennett is, in my opinion, and it's not a not-so-humble opinion, the person who knows more about charity accountability in this world than anyone. There's no one you can find who will know more about this. He, he doesn't like it when I say that, but it's the truth. <laughs> no one knows more about this than Bennett. So what you're going to hear today from Bennett is a learned understanding of what it takes to give effectively 
during a disaster and how to think about making impactful gifts. Bennett, welcome to the show. It's great to have you back. Well, thank you for the overly kind words of introduction. I don't know if I can live up to them, but I'll do my best. Thanks, Art. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure you will. So, Bennett, let's get started with the disasters. We're at a time now when obviously there's a lot going on in the Middle East. But prior to that, we've seen some hurricanes this year. We've seen wildfires, floods. We've seen the situation over in Ukraine. And every day we see fires and there are sometimes mass shootings that we see go on here in the country. There are all sorts of calamity, some of them inflicted by nature and others inflicted by humans. But when we see these things, we want to reach out and try to make those affected whole, make them feel like they don't have to lose as much as they've lost as a result of that. And we want to try to mollify to the extent that we can the pain and suffering that they're experiencing by making gifts of money and things, by supporting organizations that are in a position to help. But Bennett, what are you seeing over now, I would say, these many years that you've been doing this work? And what have you learned about disaster giving in general? And we'll get into some specifics, too, as we talk. Yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of change. I want to talk about two basic things. One of them is the timing. I mean, in the old days, it'd take a few days for uh, disaster appeals to get out there before people can respond. Now it's within hours of the event that people are wanting to do something about it immediately through uh, some type of online gift or through other social media campaigns that are encouraging you to give. So uh, people are wanting to respond immediately and there are means to do that. And, And that I think has changed because of the technologies that are available to send donations and to send out appeals so quickly. But the other thing that I think that we've learned over the years is that what I would call the three R's of relief, like reading, writing, arithmetic in school, there are also three R's in disaster relief. And and they are rescue, relief, and recovery. Those are the basic things that most every disaster has. And the, the thing we hear about on the news right away is the rescue phase. Or in many cases, earthquakes, hurricanes, things like that. The number one thing is how to save lives immediately by going in with search and rescue or getting people out or providing immediate medical care. Uh, those rescue teams, when they, when they do take place very often, are connected to government agencies that, you know, are flying people in into the area of the disaster, wherever it might be. And they're going out and doing that work with either, you know, with dogs or, or other assistants based on their expertise. And sometimes it's from a number of different countries that this is happening, depending on where in the world. The relief phase is the type of activity where really charitable giving is mostly impactful. And, you know, that's the phase where you're, you're, you're giving money to organizations that are going to be providing food, a shelter, maybe even medical care and other things like uh, pharmaceuticals that are immediately needed for those. And, and that's, that's where charities are directly engaging, soliciting more. And the third phase is more of the long-term issue, recovery, because after the actual disaster is over, 
there's always a question of rebuilding or recovering from the tragic event, whatever it might take place. You know, and some people think that that recovery is only relevant to physical disasters. Not necessarily so, because if you have a mass shooting, the psychological impact on the neighborhood is still there. And that's a long-term issue that also needs to be addressed with help from organizations and others that that hopefully will be engaged in assisting the populations. So when I hear on the news that there's an event and I want to support it, as a donor, what should I be thinking about? As an average citizen who wants to make a difference here to try to alleviate some of the pain and suffering, what should I be doing? Well, I think the number one thing for people to remember, if they forget anything else in this podcast, is to check out the charity before you make the gift. Very often people respond to the very first appeal that they get because they want to do something right away. That may not necessarily be your best option. And you need to take the time to look at what you want to give to and how you're going to accomplish that. And that requires just a couple of clicks of the mouse. You can go to our website at give.org to see if the charity meets our standards, but there are other things to also consider when making the donation. And and I would say the first thing that should come to mind is, can the the, the charity get to the impacted area? Now, that might seem like a simple question, but that's not always an easy one to answer, especially if the disaster is another part of the world and there may be logistical problems in getting there quickly. And sometimes the only organizations that can provide immediate aid are those that already are located in the disaster area. So it's a question that they can now reach out and get whatever else is needed nearby and begin distribution of whatever assistance I know they can provide. Another popular thing that happens and people think of right away is crowdfunding. And I understand uh, the motivation for assisting that, but my advice is, is that if you know the person individually, I mean, it's safest to go to, to help someone that you know, directly or indirectly, and can provide with crowdfunding support. If you're giving to someone that you don't know, some sites do a better job of vetting those crowdfunding posts than others. And that's something to consider. And remember, when you're giving to a crowdfunding help for request, even a site that vets the individuals to make sure that they are who they say they are and they're in the impacted area, that may not be a guarantee they're going to be spending money on what they're actually soliciting for help for. So I always encourage people to give to established charities because there's more oversight, there's more verification of how the money is going to be used, and you can end up helping more people with the same amount of money. Yeah, and that's not to say that the charity you support is going to be flawless in execution as well, right? I mean, we, we see charities that have challenges when it comes to delivering aid as well. But I, I think you would agree, and I think you're saying, that you have a much better chance of those charities fixing problems or getting in and out of the area where they're trying to provide relief than something that was just created overnight or or simply a, a direct gift. Now, you know, direct gifts are what they are, but maybe the way to make an impact is to consider giving some money to an institution that's been proven to be able to do that work. I think that's what I'm hearing you say. That's right, Art. And, and sometimes the best of intentions 
may not have the best results. And uh, what I am thinking of is the case of the Good Samaritan. Mm. This is a, an issue that we see with domestic disasters. When there's a hurricane or tornado or something along, along those lines, you'll see people soliciting online, hey, I have a pickup truck, and they may be posting on a crowdfunding site, I'm going to load up water and emergency provisions, and I'm going to drive down to the area and help and, and distribute things. I understand the motivation for people wanting to help out immediately through something like that. But they need to keep in mind that unless you know what you're doing, you may end up increasing the bottleneck of the actual aid that needs to get through there. And as, as an individual, you're not going to know where the need is, is uh, what locations are going to be needed to help. And you may be even duplicating efforts for people who are already there. So I think that even though people want to help in that way, I think the best thing they can do is, is to give to established groups that already have a presence and are working there because they're going to be more effective in, in getting things done. Even though, again, the intentions may be pure, there is a professional need in terms of how to deliver the activities where they're needed. Well, and I think sometimes maybe we don't consider the complex nature of disaster relief, right? I mean, to go into a place that is basically in tatters, well, a lot of decisions have to be made about when to go in, how to go in, what to go in with, whether certain places are even accessible, and who, as you said, is likely to have what's needed already on the ground or access to that information or that material that people are going to need is challenging. And it's very complex, very dynamic, usually in, in those situations. And it's helpful, I think, when you're thinking about giving to take all of that into account. You need an organization or organizations, if you want to give to more than one, that is equipped because of their experience to really deal with those dynamic challenges. Yeah, and, and those challenges can come from a lot of different sources. Like, take the, the Afghanistan earthquake that happened on October 11th, uh, 2023, just a short time before this podcast recording. One of the challenges I think that charities face in providing aid is how to get assistance in there. And the Taliban has always, has not been the friendliness in terms of foreign aid. And even the UN had cut back on aid into Afghanistan because of restrictions in female workers working in that country, among other things. So the politics of the situation can affect the ability of organizations to deliver aid. And, you know, that's an issue. The other thing about circumstances is sometimes there are lessons learned from where organizations and others weren't coordinated in providing aid and assistance and, and problems ensue. And the thing that I'm thinking of is Katrina in 2005 hitting the New Orleans area, that horrible circumstance. There were problems there in preparedness in that the area really didn't have enough in, in place for a disaster of that size. And that one Katrina hit, it affected 90,000 square miles, uh, and that's a huge territory to cover. Wow. And also over 100,000 people were unemployed because of what happened there, because of businesses devastated and things yeah. happening. And there was also the problem of federal government coordination. That was a big lesson learned in them being able to do what they needed to do at the beginning which ended up in, in adding to the tragedy. Uh, there was a lot of lessons learned from that particular devastating you know, event. 
Ben, you've also probably studied over the years what is required based on the type of disaster. So you and I, for instance, began our professional relationship just before 9-11. And while our nation was quick to respond, it would be a, a terrible mistake to say that we weren't surprised and shocked by what happened. And so many people of goodwill stepped up to try to make a difference. But what we saw was that the relief effort was splintered, that there were lots of organizations going after the same kinds of dollars and new organizations that were created overnight. And there was a lot of confusion among the public about what their money was actually going to be used for because we had essentially 3,000 or so victims and families that were directly affected. And of course, many more that were, we found out that were affected later on, but that wasn't our focus. Then the focus seemed to be on those immediately affected and impacted. And yet later on, you know, if you go to some other disasters, what we see is that there's more of a willingness, maybe like a Katrina or a Haiti, where people were willing to give for a more prolonged period of time because they wanted to impact the rebuild of those communities. And this was particularly the case with companies. But if you can, tell us a little bit about how we should think about a disaster based on the nature of the disaster and the gift the kinds of giving that we want to make. Because sometimes people say, oh, I want to give clothes or I want to give things because they see people have already lost so much and they have extra and they want to give. But that may also not be the right tool to use, right method to use to provide relief for a variety of reasons too. But talk about the nature of the disaster and how that can affect what we should do as donors. Well, you know, that's a great question, Art. And I especially I remember those times at 9-11. What the, there were a lot of issues that were involved that I think uh, we were learning from it back then. Uh, one of them was, I think, the emotion of the moment at that time was so high and people had a need to feel that they were doing something to address it. Yeah, and and as a result, so many entities stepped up to the plate and said, "Well, we're going to help, and we're going to help." And there was a lot of fundraising going on, but I would say in most cases, people were raising money without even any idea about how they were going to spend it. Yeah, they would just said the victims and families, and that was about it. And you had all these efforts that were taking place, and huge amounts of money that were given. And I think one important lesson from that is sometimes it's best to wait to see what the need is before making the the gift, because otherwise you might be giving to someone that doesn't necessarily have a plan about how to spend it and what to do with it, even though, again, their intentions may be pure. The other thing, logistics of it, you mentioned Haiti. That was a earthquake in 2010, seven Richter scale on seven, huge quake there, over 100,000 deaths, over 100,000 injured. It was just 
massive, massive need. The sad thing is, because of where the epicenter of that quake was in Haiti, initially, the main airport there had one runway that was open, I remember, just one. And so it was, again, a bottleneck as to how much aid and when they can get through it. And so that slowed, again, the ability to deliver it. You know, again, the logistics of what happens at an event, the circumstances are unpredictable. And that's where something fed into, unfortunately, in getting the aid quickly to the areas needed. And, and, you know, who could have predicted that that would have been the case? So things are going to happen that no one's going to know and organizations are going to need to adapt to it. And that's why sometimes the best gift you make may not necessarily be the first one soliciting because people have to see what exactly is going on uh, before they can determine what the immediate need is. So circumstances and logistics are there. Now, you also mentioned, what about people that just want to maybe ship clothes or other provisions out there and they may be involved with their local house of worship or maybe putting something together on their own. And the problem with that type of assistance is unless you have some coordinated effort with someone who has a connection to a charity that can distribute these goods, the likelihood of you being able to just ship them on your own and getting it to those in need is going to be slim, at least in a quick fashion. And usually disaster relief groups don't ship from the U.S. They, they get the provisions in the country or nearest to where the disaster is so that they can, again, quickly get the needed provisions to the area impacted as soon as possible. And, you know, your local solicitation efforts are not necessarily going to have that ability to get that done. So, again, good intentions, but not necessarily effective giving in terms of getting it to the help when it's needed and and also what's needed. You don't know exactly what's needed and you may be giving something that isn't helpful. And that's important. We also see, too, right, that sometimes people are simply raising money to give to a charity. And I think that sometimes will cloud our sense of what we should be doing. You know, we hear from people who are saying, I'm giving money, send me money so I can give it to XYZ Charity Relief Organization. When the reality is you could just go and give directly to that organization if that's what you wanted to do. And uh, I agree. Cut out the middleman. Cut out yeah. the middleman. And, right. and give directly to the group. Exactly. And then there's, of course, public figures who get involved, right? And many of them give their own money. So we don't want to uh, suggest that they're not doing that. But they're also making pleas to give to funds that they've created or directly to charities. And I like that when they when they stand up and say, give to XYZ charity. But you know, that can be a challenge too. You shouldn't just give because you heard from a celebrity or spokesperson and you need to make sure that you're giving to an organization that works because we've seen challenges with that over the years as well, right? When a celebrity sets up their own organization, right? there can be some challenges associated with that. Not to say in all cases, but you definitely need to check it out. Think about it this way. 
at least I do, they are good at singing, they're good at performing, they're great athletes. How much time do they really have to run a charity that can deliver in a complex disaster situation? So uh, those are things that, you know, we have to think about. But, you know, these people influence us in such amazing ways. It's sometimes hard to detach our reason from their celebrity and and do what makes the most sense in a particular situation. Yeah, that happens, I think, Art, particularly with domestic disasters, where you have famous people sometimes wanting to set up their own activity, as you indicated, and they may have their own emotional reason why they feel they need to found something and, and, and raise money for it. But the, the challenges they're going to face are significant because they have to figure out a way about how to distribute aid and the basis for it and so forth and so on. And unless they have experience doing that, it's going to be something that may end up being delayed aid and, and not immediate. I wish sometimes that they would solicit on behalf of an established group that has experience so that people can give to something where there's a track record and the ability and knowledge to actually assist uh, immediately. Uh, you know, that makes the most sense. The other thing that art that sometimes happens with celebrities and also around the time of disasters is claims by some solicitors that we're going to make sure the 100% of your aid goes to those in need. And sometimes you'll see that being said. We have a tendency at BBB Wise Giving Alliance to discourage that type of announcement when it's made because it gives people the impression that there are no administrative or fundraising costs involved in delivering aid. And that's not true. There are always going to be those. So the fact that other people at the organization in terms of maybe board members or other funders are going to be paying for the admin and fundraising costs. It doesn't mean that those expenses don't exist. And when we see those types of 100% claims made, we ask the charity to disclose at the time of the the promotion how they accomplish this 100% promise. Because people should know that, again, those costs don't disappear. They're still being paid by others. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you brought that up because we do see quite often these claims that the charity is not going to have any overhead and your money is going to go directly to the cause. That's bad for a lot of reasons, which we don't need to get into for to get into today. But also just wanted to, to ask you about the challenges associated in with giving in war-related situations. Right. Those are special challenges associated with that. And I know we're we're having a moment now where we're dealing with that in the Middle East. But what are some of the specific challenges? And, and these may be also uh, specific to the particular strife, particular incident or theater. But if you speak about this in general, you could also give some examples of how we need to think about what's going on in those areas and how that affects our giving. Yeah. War situations are really a completely different dynamic because there you have a disaster that is continuing. When you have an earthquake or a hurricane or even a mass shooting, the event ends and then there's you know recovery and then you're working on it. In a war situation, it's continuing. 
you really don't have the ability to focus on recovery. It's a constant emergency situation for rescue and also relief where you can get it. And uh, using Ukraine as an example, sometimes, you know, at the beginning of the war, the, the actual location of where the need is is going to shift from one place to another, depending on where things are happening. And charities are going to need maybe to pick up and move to other areas in order to provide that assistance. And so that's an ongoing challenge that they're going to have. But long-term effects have specific problems that, that need to be addressed that you're not going to have in, in a disaster that is of short duration. And I think uh, one is just the problem of the continuing need of flow of aid. And I say that because when a disaster or war happens, uh, people are excited initially, but then sometimes their interest fades over time. If the war lasts a, a long uh, period and that flow of continuing assistance does not happen necessarily. And, and so that's a, a problem. The other thing I would say this particularly just in Ukraine as an example, what we've heard is the psychological impact on the population is is much greater because of the length of time those peoples are under stress. And uh, that presents its own set of circumstances and challenges that will be long-term in addition to the physical ones for recovery when the war is eventually over to rebuild. But the psychological impact can last a lifetime. And those are things that we don't necessarily see with our eyes, but are felt by the people that are under those circumstances. People need to remember those things and, and the importance of of aiding, for example, mental health services of various types in a, in a war-torn situation after the war is over, that that's going to be immensely important, and even during as well, especially, of course, on the youth that are impacted. They're going to be doubly harmed in that way. You know, this is a good moment to mention that the Wise Giving Alliance at Give.org has been collecting regular blogs from an individual who is living in Poland, but is from Ukraine. She had to flee Ukraine to Poland with her family to avoid the challenges that we can't even envision not living there ourselves, but left and, and took nothing, you know, and she's, she's living in a, a foreign place. Katia, I hope that maybe we could give a plug to those stories because people can get firsthand accounts of what it's like when you're a refugee, essentially from your own country because of war and the uncertainty and mental stress, as you mentioned, not to mention the economic pressures that they must feel as a result of moving your family with young kids to another place, never knowing if you're ever going to get back to your home. And they've been this way now for almost a couple of years now, a year and a half at least. It's got to be an unbelievable situation. And she's one of millions of people who are living this way. So I just wanted to uh, commend that series, and uh, maybe you've learned some things from Katya as well, Bennett. Yes, uh, Katya Zuk has been providing us with a series of of uh, blogs that we've been posting on our website that people can check out. In fact, you know, coincidentally, I, I heard from her this morning. She just sent us another one that we'll be posting soon. The one issue there I wanted to 
mention to people about wartime is one thing in Ukraine was the issue of refugees, where the populations would go into neighboring countries at the start of the war. And that created an issue of its own right in terms of being able to find places to live and uh, and assistance in establishing themselves in neighboring countries. And that was a certainly also a burden on the countries that were hosting them. But people were fleeing for their safety for obvious reasons. And that happened with billions going into neighboring countries in Ukraine. In the Middle East, you don't have necessarily that. You don't have people being able to go into neighboring countries uh, that are in Gaza. They're not able to. So that creates another challenge in, in people you know, seeking safety. But there, there's the challenge of getting aid in, because at the start of this conversation that we, we heard over the weekend that the Rafah border in Gaza was opened up so that aid can be delivered. I think the first 20 trucks of aid into Gaza went in, into that area this past Saturday, as we're talking, but they need much more aid. I mean, people are talking about the need for like 100 trucks a day, not just 20, to go through there because there's a population of 800,000 up to a million that need assistance. And that's, uh, they need a lot of, of help in order to deliver that. And so that's going to be a continuing issue. And I think about all of the complexity around that situation in, in any war situation, really. And as a donor, you don't often think about it. You hope that governments are also pitching in in a significant way. But as a donor, you don't think about how your gift might sort of complement what government is doing rather than duplicate. Because even with the outpouring of individual and corporate support to these places, clearly it's going to take governments and their uh, taxpayers through their government systems to deliver the kind of support and to open pathways for that support, right, to be delivered. Right. I was just going to say that those two examples, Ukraine and the Middle East and Gaza and Israel, provide a different set of circumstances that on the wars even that need to be met by the charities. And one disaster is not like another. And while there are similarities in terms of some of the needs, there are so many factors involved that different organizations may be better at providing that type of assistance than others. So when you're giving to charities, don't assume that the same group is going to be doing the same thing in somewhere else. It depends on the circumstances and the logistics of, of their ability in order to deliver aid in that particular area of the world. So, Bennett, what kind of assistance are we able to provide donors who want to know how to be helpful at give.org? Well, the one thing that we do is when a disaster happens, not only do we provide tips that discuss the very things we talked about in this podcast, but we also include a list of organizations that are soliciting for aid in that area. And these are entities that we have evaluated in relation to our 20 BBB standards for charity accountability and meet those standards. Those are the only groups that we include on the list. And the one authentication that we look for when the disasters happens, we go to their websites and see who was soliciting 
among the accredited relief charities for assistance, and then we'll add them to that list as more come to our attention. But that's something as a service that we provide uh, donors, and we encourage them to, to check out our lists when disaster happens, because that's something that we pride ourselves in putting together rather quickly. Bennett, do you think the average person understands what the charity will be doing with the money? Because there are different ways of providing relief, right? I would say, unfortunately, probably not. I mean, they uh, they may be familiar with the name. They may not necessarily be knowledgeable of what that particular charity does. And it's not difficult to find out. I mean, our reports will identify what they do, but better, the website itself will generally tell you, for this particular disaster, this is what we are doing, and this is how we're coordinating it. So to charities out there that want to do a better job, the more transparent they can be about their activities in the midst of a disaster, the better they will be motivating people to give to them and also have a better understanding of how their help is going to provide assistance. So we hope that charities will be more upfront. And I think the challenge that is faced now, everybody wants things right away, right away. And uh, organizations need to keep that in mind, especially in disasters, that people are looking for information as soon as possible. They don't want to wait for it. And they need to be ready to provide that detail when they can on their own websites. So go to give.org, people, and find out where you can make the most of your gift. It's really important that your money be put to good use. And we've done a lot of the work for you so that you can give with confidence to make sure that these folk who need your help are more likely to get it. And so I I just want to just offer to everyone our website, give.org. We've been doing this work for almost 100 years in some form or another. In fact, more than 100 years in some form or another. We are, in my opinion, the most, the standards, I say standards-based charity evaluator, meaning that we have a set of rigorous standards that we put every charity through to make sure that they are accredited and that you can trust them when you make your gifts. So take advantage of that free service at give.org and give with confidence. Bennett, I want to give you the last word. Is there anything else that people really want to think about? Because I know there there's so many disasters that sometimes we can feel overwhelmed by the requests that come to us. Our hearts want to give because we know people are suffering, but it's not always easy for us to find the resources to do so. But sometimes a little bit goes a long way in combination with that of others. But So I want to give you the last word to offer maybe that encouragement to donors who may feel overwhelmed. Yeah, if, if they do feel overwhelmed or they don't have much to, to donate, even a small donation to established charities really adds up to big bucks. So uh, your $10 gift can still be helpful. Don't necessarily be dissuaded from giving just because you can't make a huge gift that you'd like to at this time. And the other thing is that when the headlines disappear, the disaster needs are still going to be there. So even if you can't give today, you'll be able to give down the road because there are going to be continuing needs at that particular area for help. Well, Bennett, thanks again for, for all the work you do 
with us at give.org. As I said, there's no one in the world who knows more about how to get a charity to be accountable than you. And I just have been so blessed and honored to have worked with you all these years now and have seen firsthand the impact that your work and your knowledge and your commitment to this has had over a long period of time. Well, thank you, Art. To all of you who are listening to this podcast for the first time, I hope you'll do me a favor. I need you to subscribe to the show. We're looking to build our subscription base. By the way, there's no charge or anything to subscribe. All you have to do is go to one of the major podcast platforms and hit like, and you'll be a subscriber. And every week when a new show comes out, you'll get a notification on your phone or on your computer, whichever you use, that the new episode is out. And we always try to bring you the best people on a particular subject related to charity that you can find anywhere in the country. And if you would like to support the podcast financially or the Wise Giving Alliance, please go to give.org, G-I-V-E dot O-R-G, and make a donation, and we will certainly put that money to great use. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.